0: The Guardian.
1: Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books Podcast with me, Richard Lee.
0: And me, Claire Armistead.
1: Things may sound a bit different today as we're all staying at home and recording remotely, so we hope you'll bear with us for the next little while. A lot of you will be staying at home as well, so we'd like to hear from you, wherever you are in the world. How is lockdown changing your reading life? What books do you turn to when you're cooped up indoors? If you have any tips for us, email us at books.podcast at theguardian.com and help us build up a truly global picture. On this week's show, we meet the epidemiologist Adam Kucharski, who gave us the lowdown on how things spread, from memes to misinformation, from financial meltdown to, well, a novel coronavirus. And we'll also be hearing about some of your lockdown reading and discussing the International Booker Shortlist. Adam Kucharski is an associate professor at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, where he works on the mathematical analysis of infectious diseases. His latest book, The Rules of Contagion, explores the science of infection and the principles that underlie transmission, whether in biology, finance or in the world of information. It was written before COVID-19 had been identified and published earlier this year, when the total number of confirmed cases in the UK was only nine. So when Claire spoke to him down the line, she began by asking how it feels when the world catches up with your book.
2: I submitted the first draft um, in uh, about a kind of year earlier, but then I was obviously making a few tweaks. And the, the final thing I, was, I think was signed off in November. So a couple of
0: months before coronavirus emerged. So it's called Contagion, Why Things Spread and Why They Stop. Why that particular um, subtitle?
2: I think there's been uh, a number of books and articles about um, things that have gone viral and really kind of describing something that's that's taken off. And I think there's often a lot of focus on on really that almost all or nothing, you know, it's, it's popular or it's not kind of idea. Um, and what I really wanted to do was look more at the, the shape of an outbreak. Why, why do these things spread quickly or slowly or... Why do they peak, you know, and why obviously do these things decline? I think whether we're talking about something in the field of disease or we're talking about some like violence or financial crisis, I think that decline phase, as we're, we're hearing a lot about now, is often just as important as the growth.
0: And this is um, the important thing about this book is it it is not about this particular epidemic only it is also it makes links across a huge range of social phenomena and and finds ex- great commonalities for example between um the fi- financial crisis and health crisis this familiar graph um of the two peaks which you see in both instances
2: uh yeah and it was really an, uh, an attempt to try and draw out some of these underlying themes uh, and ideas between these fields. I think the implications on on economic performance of those countries in terms of financial damage, there were a lot of um, really kind of links between the, the, the knock-on effects on other fields. And obviously, we've seen more recently in this outbreak, things like misinformation. In some cases, you can look at, say, infectious disease, and if you can get a sense of of the principles driving outbreaks and that it can help you avoid making mistakes when you're looking at other, um, potential types of
0: contagion. And you, so your background was a math, mathemat- you're a mathematician, not a doctor or a biologist. Is that right? Yes.
2: Yeah, so my, my first degree was, was in pretty pure maths. And then, um, my, my, my PhD was more focused on analyzing disease dynamics, but it was in, it was in an uh, applied maths department at Cambridge. But increasingly I moved more towards, uh, the, the data and outbreak analysis side so um, during postdoc and then subsequent fellowships working a lot more on on things like flu on things like social behavior um, and increasingly now we're we're setting up um, studies to actually go out and collect data we well there's been some interruptions obviously with the current situation but going out for example and collecting large numbers of blood samples to understand dynamics we're hearing a lot at the moment about antibody tests um, but that's actually a lot of the work we do routinely over the last few years is actually go out and look at in population surveys how many people are infected what does that tell us about the dynamics of, of everything from flu to dengue
0: at the ve- absolutely the heart of this book is the, is the idea that all contagions are social basically social and that was something that goes all the way back to the very beginning at the first when the the word was first used the word epidemic was first used by the Greeks doesn't it
2: um it does and i think the um there's been this a, a bit of a transition that that early on, it, it was this this more kind of human social aspect, perhaps realised, and then it became more narrowly defined medically. Um, and even even in my field, uh, you know, I know some people who would uh, be unhappy that we've used contagion to define anything other than uh, an infectious disease. But actually, if you look back throughout history, and even if you look back some of the kind of early pioneers in in the study of infectious diseases, I think a lot of them always had their eye. On, on something a bit broader, this realisation that actually the principles that they were coming up with uh, didn't just have to to apply to pathogens, that actually that there, there are a lot of these um, these types of phenomena where these social links we have between people don't just drive infectious diseases, they drive beliefs and behaviours and a whole range of other things.
0: So they can drive violence or they can drive obesity or even smoking, for example, and they and, and these are all things that have been dealt with by um, applying statistical models.
2: Exactly. And as there's, there's a whole range of um, of behaviours that people have tried to, to study, and it's, it's actually the the, the field of, of research in that is, is fascinating, in part, because these things are, are so tough to analyse. If you think about it, if you, you know, if you want to do a study of how people click on things online, it's very easy just to, to change your advert, for example, and see which one people click on, you can kind of run that experiment. But if you think of something like smoking or obesity, you can't get people to, to have that characteristic to see how it would spread. So so I mean, logistically, ethically, there's many reasons you wouldn't do that. Um, and that makes it very hard to untangle how those behaviours might be spreading within a population. So there's a lot of really interesting research into trying to, to unpick this.
0: Let's just go back a little bit into the history of it. And, and one of the heroes of this book is, is um, a doctor called Ronald Ross, um, who a 19th century British doctor who studied malaria.
2: Um, he was, and he, uh, it, it was in the, the, the 1880s that he was a junior doctor. He was based in Bangalore. And over the next decade or so, he was um, obviously exposed to a lot of people who, who had malaria and became very interested in the biology of it. And through um, some visits to London and, and talk to other collaborators, he, he became increasingly convinced that mosquitoes were involved in the transmission. He did a number of experiments to try and piece together how did this parasite um, get from uh, a mosquito into a person and infect them. And in the early experiments, for example, he would pay volunteers to, uh, to drink water with, um, that had dead mosquitoes in it uh, because he thought for a while that that might be the mechanism of transmission. And then obviously... Um, Later realized that it was actually through this saliva agandas through the Bite of the Mosquito that this parasite um was getting on. He had this, this letter he wrote to a colleague that in, in retrospect it's it's obvious that humans don't go around drinking dead mosquitoes. But he he, he eventually pieced together this this mode of transmission um and won a Nobel Prize for it. Uh but for him the, the real next priority was looking at control. And I think at the time there was this this common perception that if mosquitoes transmit malaria you can't control malaria without getting rid of every last mosquito that was the kind of logic that people were having and ronald ross put together these uh, they well mathematical models but really just a, a simple set of, of logical steps that he thought well if you have a malaria case um they have to be bitten by a mosquito and then that mosquito has to survive long enough to become infectious and then go and bite someone else and he realized that if you look at the densities of mosquito populations and think about this, this transmission process, once the density gets low enough, it's actually more likely that a malaria case will recover than be bitten and, and that mosquito gone going to bite someone else. So you didn't have to get rid of every last mosquito, you could just reduce them enough and stop transmission. And this would, would become a fundamental idea in our control of disease, this idea that once you break enough links in the transmission chain, You can control a disease, even if there's still some susceptible people out there. And we now call this idea um, herd immunity with regards to vaccination, that we can't vaccinate newborns and other risk groups, but we can still stop transmission if enough people um, have been vaccinated.
0: And this is all connected with this this, this R number, the reproductive number, which I think a lot of us would never have heard of before the last couple of weeks.
2: Exactly. It's got, it's got a lot of attention, but it's, um, I think rightly so. It's been, it's been a very fundamental value, um, really over the last 20, 30 years. So the, the idea emerged, um, in its, its kind of very initial stages with Ronald Ross and others that you could, you didn't have to completely remove all the susceptible people, completely remove all the mosquitoes. You could get a decline in transmission. And we now put this, this number on things, this reproduction number, which basically says each person who's infectious on average, how many others do they give the infection to? Um, and so you can imagine there's this, this kind of cutoff value, because if the reproduction number is above one, then each case is generating more infection than there was before. So if the reproduction number was, was say, two or three, like it, it probably is for, for coronavirus in, in a number of places, then...
0: That means one person, every one person who has it, will infect two to three other people.
2: Uh, on average, yeah. On yeah. average. So, so if, I mean, so if, you have a large, if you have a lot of people infected... You know, the epidemic will follow the kind of average behavior because all the little differences will, will cancel out to some extent. And so what that means is if it's, if reproduction numbers two and each person is giving it to two, then you'd expect it to double with each round of infection. You, you get this exponential, really quickly growing epidemic. But if we can get this number below one, then even if you had, a, you know, say a hundred infected people, they would be expected To generate less than 100 in the next round and then that group would generate less than there was before and you get this decline and so what it what it means is you can first of all put a number on how easily something spreads we can say you know compared to measles or sars or flu how do these different things uh compare in in how we uh how they transmit but you can also get an idea of how much effort is required to control it because if on average each person is giving it to two other people and we want to get that number below one, then that says, well, we need to cut transmission in about half before we're going to see a decline in the epidemic.
0: And that, but there there is some areas of doubt around this, aren't there? One of the, the um, anecdotes you, you tell, which I, I found very interesting, was the John Snow cholera epidemic in Soho in, in, in the mid-19th century, um, where, where it was this cholera epidemic was traced back to a single pump and you and there, and in fact you 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 make the point that the, the word the term re- removing the pump handle has has gone into the language, but there is some question about whether the epidemic was was burning itself out anyway before the pump handle was was removed.
2: Yes, I think that that story about John Snow. So this was in in 1854, the a cholera outbreak in, in Soho. And I think it illustrates a couple of quite important points in infectious disease. So first was at the time the idea that the cholera was spread by bad air, it was this miasma theory. Um, And Snow, with some really remarkable detective work, bearing in mind at the time no one had this concept of germs and bacteria, Um, he managed to to piece together that based on where the cases were occurring, and there's a woman in Hampstead who got infected because she got her water brought up from Soho, and that bit of detective work showed that it it must be in the water source, that it was somehow transmitting through the water. Um, so it was a remarkable discovery, but then there's this story, um, which, which did happen that he went to the board of governors in Soho and, and suggested it was the pump. They weren't really convinced, but they allowed him to, to remove the handle of the pump, um, after all. And, and the anecdote goes that that, that brought the epidemic under control. But if you actually look at the data, um, the outbreak had peaked well before, um, he removed the handle. So if you, if you look at the curve, it's, it's well into the decline phase. So it was, it was a brilliant bit of science and really important for public health. But that specific intervention probably didn't stop the outbreak. And I think we see that in a number of other areas of infectious disease research, that sometimes it's tempting to make this link between an action and an effect. But actually, we really need to evaluate, was that actually the reason this thing declined?
0: But there's inevitably an area of uncertainty there, isn't there? Um, And another epidemiologist you quote is Alice Stewart, who made the connection between X-ray and leukemia. And she said that you have to make the best guess you can and act on it.
2: She got a huge amount of pushback from a a lot of industries. Um, But she made this point about epidemiology. I think we're seeing that a lot in the the COVID-19 situation. There's been a few um, opinion pieces by people who said, well, unless we have all the data we need to to get the exact answer, we can't make decisions. And and Alice Stewart had all these these, these very nice um, writings on the the topic, uh, pointing out that you... You know, you have to make a decision on the evidence you have available. And if, as she thought, you had evidence that, you know, exposing pregnant women to x-rays wasn't a good idea, that was, that was something you had to act upon. And then you could obviously refine that and revise that as you, as you got more information. But I think it was just a really nice illustration that, you know, some of these, these public health, um, uh, sort of messages and, and conclusions, even you know, the early analysis that smoking was, was causing cancer, there was a huge debate, even from statisticians claiming uh, that the link wasn't there and it was actually just a coincidence. Um, but we we have to make decisions with imperfect data, and I, I think her work really nicely illustrates that.
0: And she she said the art of the game is to get the correct judgment of the weight of the evidence, knowing that your judgment is subject to change under the pressure of new observations, which actually is what the government, uh, the British government, has been arguing it was doing when it first of all went for herd immunity and then a, a pa- seemed to about turn and suddenly go into lockdown.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the the, the recent some you know, the recent events, particularly around herd immunity, I think the I mean, personally, I think the communication was, was incredibly bad on that, given that um, our modelling is never even targeting this herd immunity. I think it's more it's a consequence that there, there may be a lot of infection in the population, even if we, we have control measures. Um, and so I think I think that did get very confused in terms of I got a lot of questions from journalists asking me, why are we sitting back and letting the whole population get infected? And I just thought that's not yeah, that's not at all what the aim is here. Um, but I think I think there is this point, and it's certainly a lot of coverage of, of coronavirus that people, you know, scientists are changing their mind or or things are, are changing. But I think we have to start, uh, you know, uh, certainly early in the outbreak um, with this acceptance of uncertainty. And there's some aspects of coronavirus we now understand very well. There's others, particularly the role of people who don't show symptoms and, and the role of children in transmission that are less clear. And I think it, it is just good science to to start with that uncertainty and make the, the best conclusions you can, but obviously update that as you get more information. And I think that's, that's in every epidemic I've worked on, even things like Zika very early on, it was ambiguous exactly what the effects of this virus were.
0: Now, th- th- what we were talking about this n- new observations, um, thing that Alice Stewart talked about is interesting because uh, people have been talking about um, whether we're talking about the science changing and saying, oh, idiots, the science doesn't hasn't changed. But actually, we're not talking about the science changing. We're talking about the observations changing. And that seems to me to be quite an important semantic distinction.
2: Um, it is, yeah. I and mean, I think, first of all, um, I think there is, there is a bit of a temptation for there's the narrative of everyone's... It's almost the this sort of political yes no type approach that you know all all these people have their view and they're stuck in it and if they budge then they're wrong kind of kind of story and I think with science you do have to update as you get more views in I think it's also important though to realize that policy making is separate from a lot of the science that our role and and many other groups um, in this process is we you know we present evidence we come up with um, analysis of different aspects of, of transmission. We, we come up with different scenarios, um, and it's up to governments to to make the decision on what they want to do with that evidence. I think sometimes there's there's been this narrative that there's one magic mathematical model that's telling the government what to do, whereas in reality, there's a whole bunch of different models, a whole bunch of different evidence, and then further up the chain, it's up to people to to decide how they want to weigh that and and what they want to do based on the limited information available at the time.
0: And and linked to the delivery of policy is as the communication of policy. And another thing that struck me all the way through your book is how much it's to do with communication. Whether it's, you know, Florence Nightingale being personified as the lady with the lamp when actually she was pouring over pie charts and working out the statistics of sickness in the the Crimean field hospitals, or whether it's Government wonks um, and and you you have a section on fake news, and you make the point that actually illness and fake news are very intimately connected and and it's really important to tackle both of them at the same time in order for fear terror not to get out of hand
2: i think I think definitely i mean uh, th- that communication' is a key point I mean, and France nightingale i think was was a incredibly good example of someone who uh, essentially accumulated data and evidence and then advocated for a position and i think we we see that quite a lot that i th- i think um it's very easy for people to to put together some analysis and then it not go anywhere but i think that ability to communicate it in a way which is useful for people to make decisions on i think is is a, a yeah you know, real skill that that is important in these these kind of fields and not just infectious disease if you look at anything from violence and other things as well
0: so it's not just about communicating the positive, it's about, it's about limiting the negative, so limiting the misinformation that's swirling around in, in, in our virtual world.
2: Exactly. I think the, the, the fight against misinformation, I mean, certainly in the early stages of this outbreak, um, was a huge one that we had enormous amount of speculation. I think in part early in an outbreak, because you do have this information va- uh, vacuum, the very confident totally incorrect statements get a lot of coverage because inevitably a lot of scientists are saying well we know this but we don't know a lot of other things i remember in in early interviews um i gave kind of back in january i'd be able to say a few things with some confidence but then a lot of my answers were like well we don't know yet and if you have someone who comes in with with very strong statements that that does get traction and i think especially um With the the, the speed of contagion we have now in terms of um, how quickly things can get picked up, it's actually, as we saw with some of these these kind of early scientific papers or early scientific reports that weren't really very rigorous, by the time that scientists have managed to look through them and debunk them, it's already in headlines around the world.
0: So what do we do about that? Do we have hope or do we think that actually we're just going to consume ourselves with terror and panic and and misinformation?
2: Um, I think oddly enough, a lot of the measures that have been um proposed for being very effective at dealing with misinformation that that a lot of tech platforms have been seemingly very reluctant to to adopt they have actually made more effort to adopt during this outbreak maybe it's because coronavirus is clearly a threat and it's there's not this kind of political angle to it but um one of the one of the i think the realizations over the last few years is that you can't get rid of all bad information on the internet i think there's the from an infectious disease analogy is the equivalent of saying well why do we just go out and find all the cases and then we'll solve the problem i mean that's just not how you tackle outbreaks because it's just not feasible if you look up coronavirus on most major tech platforms now you'll get credible messages first if you look on social media a lot of them are preempting you and and giving you correct information up front and that tends to be more effective because it doesn't um try and play cat and mouse with every possible bit of misinformation out there but it's just changing the structure of the network so it's harder to get exposed and you're preemptively exposed to stuff that is more reliable.
0: So something might come out of this that will actually help us to deal with our contagion in the, in the, in the, in the sphere of communication, which we've all been panicking about even before we got ill.
2: I hope so. Um, because certainly, I mean, one of the things I mentioned in the book is uh, how companies have tried to deal with, with health misinformation in Pinterest, for example, a couple of years ago, actually just started to to rewire their search results to make it harder to see that information. They they acknowledged it was very hard just to get rid of all of it. So they thought, well, how how do we just make sure people aren't exposed to it, even if it's still there? But of course, it's one thing writing articles and and me writing a book passage about what may or may not work, but actually having a real life, large scale case study of, of how this thing was implemented, I think it's gonna be really useful for understanding in future how we can prevent people latching onto misinformation at scale.
0: So personally, just a very final question, you, you, the, the fact that your book has come out right now means that you have been sort of catapulted into onto the public stage to some extent as an expert in this field. How is that for you?
2: Uh, it, it has been, I think, good to have the opportunity to be able to correct a lot of the um, misinterpretations and, and misinformation that's out there and obviously if you do have more of a platform um, it is useful to do that I don't think it's just been a situation where loud misguided people are uh, uh, dominating the conversation that actually we have seen um, a large number of epidemiologists and, and people who've been working on these questions for, for a long time being able to contribute as well
0: thank you very much I'll have to let you get back to your day job
1: yeah. thank you <laughs> that was Adam Kacharski. The Rules of Contagion is published on Profile's Welcome Collection list in the UK, and is due from basic books in the US later this year. After the break, we'll be hearing what some of you have been reading during the outbreak, and casting an eye over the International Booker shortlist. Welcome back to the Guardian Books podcast. As people all over the world shut themselves off in their homes, literature is one way of throwing open the door. We love hearing about the books you're turning to at this time, so many thanks to everyone who's been in touch so far. People like Eleanor, who says that even her reading is keeping away from the virus.
0: I'm trying my best to maintain a semblance of normality, if only in the books I read. However, I'm definitely avoiding plague-related reading, not putting myself under pressure to tackle hugely long novels, although I do have Duck's Port on my shelf. I've been looking forward to that one for a while and finding short stories, non-fiction and translated fiction even more appealing than usual. Perhaps they give me the feeling of being able to enter a different, more normal world with comparative ease.
1: Philip is in France and adopting a pick-and-mix approach.
0: I've had Pete's diary, the full set, on my shelves for many years, and Ulysses since I was a teenager 60 years ago. I've been too fearful that I'll never be able to read either of them, but still wanting to. So I started to read both works at the same time as Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall. I read a few pages of each almost every day. The piecemeal approach has got me used to the language and style of each, and their worlds are now familiar, easily picked up, frequented. John
1: Gibbons, on the other hand, is reading some classics.
0: I'm rereading old books I have, currently Ian Banks. I'm surprised by how much I've actually forgotten. I sell a few antique books for a book collector friend on Abe's Books. The business there's pretty much stopped. I'll have to shut the shop quite soon.
1: Good luck to you, John and Eleanor. You might be particularly interested in our next topic, which is the shortlist for the 2020 International Booker Prize. So, Claire, who's made
0: the cut? Well, there are six books on the shortlist: um, The Enlightenment of the Green Gage Tree by Shuka Azar, which is translated by, from Farsi by an anonymous translator. The Adventures of China Iron by Gabriela Cabezón Camara, uh, translated by Iona McIntyre and Fiona McIntosh. Um, It was one of two Argentinians on the long list. Hurricane Season by Fernanda Melchor, which is from Mexico, um, translated by Sophie Hughes. Till by Daniel Can- Kellerman um, from Germany, translated by Ross Benjamin. The Memory Police by Yoko Ogawa, um, translated by Stephen Snyder. And The Discomfort of Evening by Marieke Lucas Rindveld, translated from Dutch by Michelle Hutchinson.
1: So uh, no room for Michelle de or Samantha Swablin either. What do you make of the selection?
0: Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? You made the point, Richard, that it's, it's a bit backward looking perhaps. Um, but actually, I would say... But I would interrogate the idea of backward looking. So, for example, you have, um, the adventures of China Iron, um, and a very handy, um, although it's, it, it's, it reads as China Iron, a very handy publisher's note points out that it's China, um, designation for female from the Quechua, um, language. Um, and it's a revisionist, feminist, LBGT, post-colonial romp taking on Argentina's gaucho culture as seen from, um, the back of a, or the front actually of an ox drawn wagon driven across the pampas by the colourful Mrs. China, uh, Mrs. China Iron. Um so, so is that backward looking or forward looking?
1: <laughs> it's as you say, it's set in the past, isn't it? But it's it's actually looking at the past with a very new way. Yeah.
0: Exactly, exactly. Perhaps more um backward looking in a way is is another comedy um which is Daniel Kellerman's Till, which is set in the Thirty Years' War. And it's about a prankster, um, a well-known prankster from 17th century Germany who becomes their equivalent of a showbiz celebrity. Um, And that's going to be quite high profile, I think. It's being turned into a Netflix series as we we speak. Then you've got The Enlightenment of the Green Gauge Tree, um, and its author, Azar, is a former uh, Iranian journalist who's now a refugee living in Australia and that's a magical realist tale set in Iran in the decade following the 1979 Islamic Revolution uh, narrated by the ghost of a 13-year-old girl whose family flee Tehran for a new life in the village only to find that they can't escape the post-revolutionary chaos anyway so yeah that, and that is a sort of obviously backward looking um but then you you know then there are sort of breaks with that so so on the other hand you have um Hurricane Season which is um a really in- structurally inventive murder mystery set in um a, a lawless Mexican village rife with superstition um it's um Fernanda Melchor's uh English language debut and it's written in eight paragraphs ranging from 1 to 64 pages long one of those <laughs> um, and
1: but, but fiercely contemporary as well
0: yeah absolutely i mean you know we we're, we're dealing with um with sort of Borders and international um, breakdown of of law and order. Yeah, I think I think very very um, very contemporary. The 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 app the, the senior um, presence on this list is um, Yoko Ogawa, whose Memory Police was actually first published in Japan in 1994. Now I have a bit of an issue with this. 1994 seems a very long time ago, and and to be for for this. For a novel that was published then to then go on in two thousand and twenty to win a prize seems a bit odd to me. But that's you know that's bad luck for Yoko Gawa in a way who who should have been recognised before now. And that is a um, actually it, it, this that will very much appeal to readers of Colson Whitehead and Most inhabit, because like Underground Railroad and Exit West it it, you, it takes a metaphor a metaphor and makes it into an imaginative truth. In this case, it's a, an island where um, memory is not allowed, a, a surveillance state, if you like.
1: And no fault of Agawas, that, that it's taken more than 20 years for the book to be translated.
0: No, no, <laughs> I know. Absolutely not. And I, I mean, this is the deplorable state of translation in this country, that this does sometimes happen. But I personally, I think it is a bit of an issue that a, that a book that is so old and is not therefore representative necessarily of, of the writer's, more recent work should win a big prize um, the, the on the, at the absolutely the other end of the scale is the discomfort of evening um, which actually i am very keen on um, it's a uh, dutch novels um, set on a dairy farm in the 1990s um where which among a family of god-fearing reformists um who who are who are torn apart by the death of a child in a skating accident and it's narrated from the point of view of the the dead child's sister who's 10 at the beginning and 12 at the end and it and it takes the children in the family through adolescence in an unmoderated adolescence if you like because their fat, their parents are too busy with their own sorrows and miseries to actually see what's going on among these children who're trying to make sense of a world when the only vocabulary they have is this sort of brutal rural vocabulary of sort of insemination and um you know frog frogs being squashed on the road it's it's a, it's a novel for strong stomachs <laughs> uh,
1: and that's the book that you'd like to see with, uh, take the prize in the end is it Claire
0: i think the problem with the discomfort of evening is it 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 you really do need to have a strong stomach for it but i think that as a it's an utterly original voice Without being at all experimental or tricksy in, in the ways, say, of um, Hurricane Season, um, I could honestly say I've never read anything quite like it. So, yes, I think that, that in terms of um, taking my idea of what the twentieth century, 21st century novel is capable of forward, that would be the one I would choose.
1: And that's all for this week. Next week, we'll be talking to Greg Jenner about the history of celebrity and whether they're anything more than a waste of space. Drop us an email on books.podcast at theguardian.com or leave a comment on the podcast page. We really appreciate your support at this difficult time. In times of global crisis, trusted news is more important than ever and The Guardian is committed to accurate, reliable news. You can help us to provide the quality information the world needs by supporting The Guardian – just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. But for now, from me, Richard
0: Lee, me, Claire Armistead,
1: and our producer, Esther Apokujeni, thanks for listening, and goodbye.
0: For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.